Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? I was not planning on broadcasting today because I have a lot of stuff to do. I had a I had a a video all lined up, Pop Tart review, check that out. I uh, pushed that to 8 p.m. Um, but it it felt appropriate to I, I had to I had to uh, go live um, because we lost a magn a, a ginormous uh, talent um, and it's just so sad it's just such a bummer um, Meatloaf has left the building. Uh, Marvin Michael Aday, a.k.a. Meatloaf. We don't really do too much eulogizing here on the channel. Uh, we did briefly, I, you know, I clipped a video about Sylvain Sylvain when he passed away, and we we do touch when people uh, leave, die, whatever. Um, but Meatloaf is just, oh, my God. I mean, bad out of hell. One of the, it's one of the, the the biggest selling albums of all time. We're going to talk about that. Uh, this is not going to be a super long episode. And I, I just want to say, even though I am a big Meatloaf fan, I am not. And I think most I would I would have to call myself more of a casual fan in terms of my knowledge. So I do have some things open to help me. Um, I'm going to do the best I can here just to talk a little about little bit about Meatloaf. Uh, my, you know, my personal like, you know, exposure to meatloaf really begins funny to say that my personal exposure to meatloaf, my my um my exposure to meatloaf begins when I'm 10 years old seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I was at my friend Andrew Norwicki's house and he had it on VHS and we popped it in and watched it in the afternoon. And I can still remember the TV that we watched it on and seeing it and um, just being like changed forever by what I was seeing. I was so blown away. And of course, one thing that stood out was obviously the music and, you know, um, uh, meatloaf, you know, um, at playing the character of Eddie, he, he didn't originate the character of Eddie, but he sure popularized him. He was part of the, uh, LA cast, the Roxy cast for the Rocky horror picture show. When they first touched down in America, after they left England, uh, before the film had had opened up, the whole cast had been replaced mostly, except for Richard O'Brien and Tim Curry. And that's when Meatloaf joined the cast. And he didn't just play, you know, the, on the stage. He wasn't just playing Eddie. He also played Dr. Scott. Jonathan Adams, who plays Dr. Scott in uh, in the movie, was the original criminologist, I believe, in uh in the in the King's Landing show, the, the first, the very first Rocky horror show. Um, and you know, Meatloaf had like he was also one of these dudes, he's one of those rock star turned actors, man. In the 90s, he started showing up in everything. I think the most famous thing is, you know, his name was Robert Paulson in um Fight Club, but he was in what was that black dog movie with um uh patrick swayze i think he was in a ton of stuff he's in a ton of movies little bit character stuff um at, at, at as his movie career was dwindling i you know i was working on sets i i was in i was doing you know sort of art department stuff um out in chicago i was going to school in chicago and um I was just working as like a set dresser or, you know, uh, just art department, stuff like that. Um, Greeking, Greeking labels in supermarkets. I don't know. Uh, you know, you have to like change around the logos and stuff. And I worked on this film called Polish Bar. Uh, I think it came out in 2009. Tiny little independent film. Probably the whole budget was like $400,000. Very, very small. And I, I was 
shocked to learn that, you know, when we arrived to set, it was at a bar. Um, I don't remember where in Chicago, but it was at a bar. You know, you hop in a van and they just take you to the set. And there was Meatloaf. Meatloaf was uh, playing a bartender in this film called Polish Bar. And it was really cool, man. And we didn't really, you know, see him much when he was shooting. But then when we were breaking, they were breaking for dinner. And we're waiting in line for, you know, craft craft um, services. I, I think we were just talking about Meatloaf the other day. Or what, are you saying we on this channel or you were? I do believe we were talking about Meatloaf. Um, we were we were standing in line at Kraft or whatever you want to call it uh, for, you know, dinner. And somebody like Meatloaf's handler brings Meatloaf in and is all like, uh, here, uh, let me get you. Let me fix you a plate. And Meatloaf insisted insisted on waiting in line with everybody else. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not more important than anybody else here. And I will wait in line. And so he did. And then when we're all sitting down and eating, the art department people, were, we were all just sitting and eating together. And Meatloaf sat and ate with us. He joined us and just hung out, just like regular average guy talking with the crew, um, just chatting it up. Um, I don't try to remember some of the conversation. Uh, I, I did, you know, I did, I, I was engaged in the conversation. I don't remember much of what we talked about. What I do remember is someone eventually said, hey, um, why don't you come uh, karaokeing with us? We're going to go karaokeing after work. I was not a part of that, but that's what somebody said and offered. An, and everybody else was like, yeah, come on, come on, come on, come, come karaokeing with us and meet love. You know, he just smiled and he's like, guys, 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 don't you know this happens every time I'm on a set? Everybody, you guys always ask me to go uh, and do karaoke and you know what happens. Eventually, somebody puts on, wants to put on that song and somebody asked me to do that song. You know the one. And when he said that, everybody laughed because he's talking about I do anything for love, which, you know, we're talking, we're going to talk a little bit about Bat, Bat Out of Hell, but like, What's amazing about Meatloaf, and we let's not forget Jim Steinman, who also recently passed away. And it's not that I he didn't warrant his own video. I figure like we'll talk about both of them together because he's just so important. I mean, he is the brains, he's the mastermind behind Meatloaf. Okay. Like Meatloaf is the singer, he's the front piece, he's the presentation, but it's all the words and music of Jim Steinman. Okay. He's the genius as well. Um, so it's like incredible talent with genius and talent combining incredible performer and talent with genius and talent combining together to make this bat out of hell album. And the thing is, what's amazing is that the song that meatloaf is most known for is, you know, I do anything for love, which was just as big of a hit as bad out of hell. It was a huge, huge hit. However, bad out of hell is, you know, one of the best selling albums of all time, 43 million copies sold worldwide. Now they didn't start doing sound scan till 1991. So I don't think they have exact numbers, but it, it, it's approximately somewhere in there. I think on paper, it's like 23, but we don't go by that figure. It's 43 million. Um, Rue says he's on his way to work. He just wants to say hello and express the sympathies to the gr late, great meatloaf. I met him back in 89. He was super nice and funny guy. RIP meatloaf. Yeah, dude. Thank you for chiming in Rue. And I hope you have a nice day at work. And um, yeah, dude, it just, it, it's just a, it's a bummer, man. It is a bummer. That dude was, uh, I mean, he was, he was done. He had sort of retired. Um, he had sort of retired and, and, and wasn't really doing much. They had the musical out. Someone was touring under the meatloaf brand. It was kind of getting kind of lame. You know, those guys didn't really, um, they kind of got uh, screwed out of their royalties. I don't know the exact story behind that, but they got, there, there's a whole sordid tale about that. I'm actually kind of curious myself. Why did meatloaf not get paid for that out Oh, hell. He did get paid. I just figured this is the easiest way to Google this. Uh, uh, Meatloaf's beef is lack of royalties. This is going back to 1996. 
Um, I remember when this happened in 2017, they were doing a, another bad out of hell release and meatloaf was, was, was going after them. And he sued in 2006 over bat bad out of hell. So there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of contention. Could you imagine having the greatest selling album of all time and not making royalties? I mean, think about that 43 million copies worth of revenue. And that's just from sales. That's not including everything else. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And who has all of that money or who made a big chunk of that money? I believe Todd Rudgeon, who produced Bad Out of Hell. And listen, I don't, you know, I don't know what Meatloaf and Jim Steinman's relationship with Todd Rudgeon was like later on. But like, you know, if it wasn't for Todd, they wouldn't even have they wouldn't have any success. I mean, it, they owe everything to Todd. They had the music, they had the talent, but they couldn't record the album. I know I'm kind of swerving all over the place to finish my tale about meatloaf, about meeting meatloaf. Um, it, it was just so cool to sit and hear him and he was just goofing about the, the karaoke thing and just really one of the guys. And some time ago, so I didn't realize this. I, I just learned this actually from Greg Fasolino on Facebook. Apparently, um, I can't use these words on YouTube because it will, it could, I don't know. It could do something to the video, but let's just say this. Um, Meatloaf passed away from C19, if you know what I'm talking about. He from the uh, he he died from from getting sick from that illness, and apparently it's because he was against the V, the the big the big jab, the V. And I did not know that, and that makes me even more sad to think that perhaps his death was easily preventable had he just gotten the jab, and you know. Um, and and C19 might not have done what it did to his body. He was 74 years old at risk. You're at risk when you're that old. Um, so that really bums me out to hear that as well. But we're not going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to separate the artist from the human. Um, because, uh, again, like I said, my interactions personally with Meatloaf were wonderful. And I wouldn't want anything to sort of take away from that in this moment on the day of his death. Um but it is worth noting the irony that he passed away because of his because he ref, because of his refusal to to you know do that which was so preventable i wrote i wrote one day on a facebook post i mean on on his facebook post i wrote i'll never forget he was you know people were giving him crap because he was conservative too i don't i don't remember exactly what he was getting crap for it had nothing this was uh, pre C19. This is pre COVID times. Uh, I wrote, I'll never forget when you sat and ate with us in the art department on the Polish bar film, or when you stood in line with everyone else to eat after you had been offered to cut the line. You are an incredible man and an incredible musician. Screw all those haters. And Meatloaf responded to my comment. He said every, and you know, if you look, used to look, you go look on Meatloaf's Facebook. He responds to all, like he talks, like he, uh, he, he that's him that, that he doesn't have a handler doing that. You could tell with the misspelling and missing words and stuff. He says every movie or TV show, I always eat with the crew, not back in my trailer in the business. And he, I think he meant to say anyone in the business. It just says in the business, anyone in the business will understand what I just wrote and never cut in line. I can't wait. I can wait my turn. So he's saying never cut in line. I can wait my turn. Everyone else works hard are or harder than I do. Maybe he was doing it with voice to text. In any case, that really um, that that really uh, was cool that he responded like that. I was not expecting expecting that. And here's what I wrote. I just wrote a little sort of thing. I, I explained the thing that I said, and um, you know, I did. I do wish I had taken a picture, um, but it was before cell phone cameras. This was 2008, you know, and just you just did not have phones handy and that would mean you'd have to have like a like a little snapshot like a disposable camera or something or you know a, it just would have been incredibly tacky especially on sets when like you know you're supposed to be desensitized to people who are you know famous or of note or rock stars or whatever so to like you know uh to try and do that and here's the thing here's meatloaf he's sitting with us at the like at, like we're, we weren't sitting at a table we were just sitting like around you know, like on whatever, on whatever there were not, there weren't even any chairs. I, as I recall, we'd like, like, you know, like boxes and things. 
And um, he just wanted, he was just trying to show us that he was one of the guys and, or one of the, one of the, one of the team. And so to ask him to take a picture, it, it just, it, it just would have uh, spoiled the, the moment and the mood, even if I had had a camera to do so. So it was a good thing, but I do wish I had a picture of me and meat, just like, you know, smiling on that set. That would have been cool. Having this screenshot is a nice um, sort of like keepsake, I guess. Um, and, you know, and even, and at that time, I was a fan of Meatloaf, the actor. I was a fan of Meatloaf from Rocky or Picture Show, but I was not uh, super into Bad Out of Hell. I love Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I loved, uh, he took the words right out of my mouth, but I never as an album, as a cons- like as a co- cohesive album, you know, Bad Out of Hell was, you know, I just, it was that iconic album cover that you always saw on the jukebox. I remember being, before I even know who Meatloaf was, I knew what that album cover was. It was everywhere, every jukebox you can imagine. Um, and, you know, you used to flip through the jukebox, look at all the pictures and stuff, that kind of thing. Um, so, so there was that. And, you know, I said here, and it's true, like Meatloaf recorded lots of albums. I believe he recorded 16 or 17 albums. And, you know, it, what, what is kind of nice, what is poignant is that Meatloaf's final album, Braver Than We, which came out in 2016, I think. Um, was with Jim Steinman. It was a it was a reunion album, and it was it was Jim Steinman's last album, and it was Meatloaf's last album. And you know what? That makes me I, I that that warms my heart a little bit, like to know that like they came together and recorded stuff. And it's not a great album. Uh, that's the thing about Meatloaf's discography. There's a lot of sort of a lot of it is rough. A lot of it is not. You know, you the problem is he Bad Out of Hell is just so great that you compare everything in Meatloaf's um, discography by it. And and everything else suffers because nothing can compare to Bad Out of Hell, except maybe I guess some people would love Bad Out of Hell too. But even that, you know, apart from I Do Anything for Love, just, you know, every, all seven tracks. And that's what's so crazy. This is an album. It has seven tracks, but it's 45 minutes long. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the back uh, side B, I think it's just Paradise by the Dashboard Light and uh, For Crying Out Loud. Maybe it has uh, whatchamacallit on it. Um, what's the song before that? Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. Maybe. Or, or is it all revved up? No place to go. I don't remember the track listing. Um, so I really, right after I'd worked with Meatloaf is when about a year later is when I really got into Bat Out of Hell, like really, 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 especially the song Bat Out of Hell. But the whole album, Heaven Can Wait, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, I already said, um, for crying out loud, is like one of the best closers of any album ever. Um, all revved up with no place to go. You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, there's only seven songs, you know, and and the follow up album, which he, you know, he teamed up with Cher to do. Um, I think it's uh, Head On, no Head Out, Peel Out. The song is Peel Out. Go seek out De- um, uh, Dead Ringer, and it was the follow up to Bad Out of Hell. I believe originally it was going to be called Bad Out of Hell too, possibly. Uh, and that was with Jim Steinman as well. But Meatloaf's voice was shot by then. He had like no voice. And um, a, a lot of that album is actually constructed from like multiple takes because he just could not make it through a take because he just he had really shot his voice out. And obviously he recovered. I mean, talk about persevering. And, you know, he said stuff in interviews that I just really take to heart. He, he you know, for a guy and I said this up here in the thing. This is a guy that performed the same seven songs over and over again for how many decades? 30 years, 30, you know, something like that. 40, 40 years almost performing the same songs over and over. And he said, um, whenever I get up on stage, I am in the music. I am in, I am feeling every lyric and um, I'm emotionally charged by every word that I'm speaking. And when you look at like videos on YouTube of, of meatloaf singing, you feel that you really, really feel meatloaf like, you know, in that kind of way. So that's beautiful, man. That That's just so beautiful. He really did. He gave 150%, um, you know, and as I said here, and this is true, you know, they were, they bad out of hell came out at the height of punk rock in 77. Right. And like, it's, it was the, one of the most, it became one of the most mainstream commercial successes ever. 
but not because it was mainstream commercial music. It was one of the most, those guys were punk rockers, man, without the label. They didn't wear the clothes and they didn't, you know, play, play in the clubs and they didn't have sonically. They didn't sound like what punk was, you know, sounding like, but make no mistake that, that iconoclast attitude, that, that spirit, that rebellious spirit of rock and roll because punk rock is really just being, it's just a rebellious rock and roll spirit, which was, you know, something that Jim Steinman really wore on his sleeve. He like his heart beat proudly with that rock and roll rebellious spirit. This is the same guy who wrote total eclipse of the heart. And also um, the Celine Dion song. uh, It's all coming back to me. Now those are all Jim Steinman, man. So when you think of Jim Steinman as just being like, you know, this uh, rock and roll guy, he's also, he's writing like, crazy pop songs dude like a a truly a genius and he he put out on his own album when he split from meatloaf after this he tried to be the meatloaf side as well as the jim low uh jim steinman side and he released an album called bad uh bad for good which has the uh um a, a monologue a spoken word monologue called life death and the american guitar which is just absolutely uh phenomenal and it's very like um it very much kind of reminds me of the end of the end by doors, uh, the Oedipus Rex. There's like this Oedipus Rex and it's not because he wants to uh, his mom and kill his dad. It's just more like, it's just more of like turning on your parents, I guess in the same way that that's kind of what happens in Oedipus Rex too. And it's like, and it's just like Jim Steinman, just absolutely brilliant, dude. Absolutely friggin' brilliant dude. So he put out that album bad for good. Dead Ringer um, did not d- hit the way that Dead Ringer did not hit the way that Bad of Hell did. Obviously, it was a massive disappointment. And, you know, Meatloaf fell into disarray for a while, and his finances he had declared bankruptcy. Yeah, sorry to break the news, crazy white boy. It's um, it's sad, dude. It's 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 a bummer. I felt like I should just do this show, so I'm doing it real quick. I took a break from my work to just come on here and uh, talk about Meatloaf a little bit. I just want to talk about them. Um, so as I said, they were punk rocks. They were punk rockers without, you know, the label and and truly like iconoclast in the sense that, you know, they went from label in 1975. Originally, three of the songs for Bad Out of Hell were for a Peter Pan inspired musical called Neverland. And that's how I think that's how Jim Steinman and Meatloaf hooked up originally. And they um they they you know they took three of the songs which were Bad Out of Hell, I think for Crying Out Loud or Heaven Can Wait, and all rev what eventually would be called All Revved Up, No Place to Go. It was called something else like Leader of the Pack or the the Pack is All Here. And they basically like workshopped these songs and came up with other songs like, you know, Paradise by the Dashboard, like all that stuff. And they went around for two and a half years to every record label imaginable. Their, their, um, Their manager even said something along the lines of like, like people were inventing record labels just to reject like these guys, you know, like in, in the meaning that like they literally could not go. There was not a single label that wanted this music, even Clive. I think Clive Davis, um, they were in his office and Clive Davis is like, you don't know anything about writing rock music. Said this to Jim Steinman in front of Meatloaf, too. You don't know anything about writing rock music. This is how you write a rock song, you know, B, A, B, B, A, you know, whatever the 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 the, the notes are or whatever. Not A, G, G, A, E, E, you know, like that kind of thing. And uh, Meatloaf uh, told Cl- uh, uh, Davis to his face, fuck off. And, you know, um, and he suggested Davis was like, you should go down, go down to the uh, ground, ground level, go outside, go to the nearest record store, pick up some records, man. And, you know, Jim Steinman was like, he was like a really, really well versed in, in music and records and all that stuff. He wasn't really bothered by it, but Meatloaf was outraged so hard. So what eventually happened was they had lied. They told Todd Rudrin that they were signed to RCA, the record label, and they were not. And Todd, uh, I guess he found out something happened. They found out when there was no money to like record the record, Todd put up all the money to record 
the record. So he was the producer as he was the, the, the financial producer, as well as I believe, you know, um, the, the actual producer, producer, that kind of thing. He was the producer of, of this thing. I guess that means, does that mean on some level he owns the record? I'd be very curious to know who owns bad out of hell. Let's look that up as well. Um, because that's interesting. Uh, who owns, who owns, Ah, that out of hell. We're going to find out right now. Uh, who owns the rights to bat out of hell? Meatloaf has sued songwriter Jim Steinman and manager David Sonnenberg over the trademark rights to bat out of hell, asking for more than 50 million. That was back in 2006. And Meatloaf had, he, you know, he did bat out of hell three and he did it. I'm not sure if he did it with Jim Steinman without Jim Steinman. Who made money from bat out of hell? Jim Steinman. I, they say Jim Steinman, but no, that I believe here. We let's refine our search. Um, bad out of hell. Money. Todd. Yeah. Let's see what, let's see what this says. In any case, Todd Rudgen took a chance and he thought it was a goof. He kind of thought it was like, um, he just kind of thought it was like this goofy kind of thing he thought it was like a spoof on bruce springsteen music you know what i mean it, it was just very um very sort of uh similar in that kind of way and 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 sort of rolls his eyes you know or rolled his eyes like he thought it was great but it was kind of like you know it was a goof it was it was somewhat of a goof or a not you know what maybe it was a novelty because here's the thing and the music is often described as like wag wagnerian um you know, in its epicness, here's how I think it is. And I wrote this here. I said, you know, um, no one would take a chance because the songs were too long. Rebellious, teenaged angst that was wrapped up in these long, bizarre, operatic, theatrical rock and roll songs. That's what it was. There was a, a rebellious rock and roll teenage angst. And it was just sort of like wrapped up in crazy sort of, you know, opera like opera stuff you know it just it, it just didn't make sense to conventional music at the time and that's the thing it wasn't conventional music and perhaps that's why it's so timeless that's why it kept selling and it keeps selling it wasn't trendy the way that the record labels wanted it to be trendy here we go we're we're loading this up right here. I'm sort of jump. We're sort of jumping all over the place. Todd Rudgeon talks about spoofing. Here you go, spoofing Bruce Springsteen, and seeing Meatloaf propose with a sal with a salmon while producing Bat Out of Hell. Wow. Um, all right. I don't want to look at that just yet. I want to look at um on Friday. Todd Rudgeon's Meat Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell job address was top story. Here's the recap. Uh, he's never looked back after selling his production points. So Todd doesn't have, does not own or does not get money from bad out of hell. He's never, um, he's never made the same kind of money again in his career. Uh, but cutting the deal with the singer and the record label set him up with a lifestyle he enjoys in, in Hawaii. So he sold. Oh, that's very interesting. He says, I don't collect royalties for it anymore. I decided to opt out. I wanted to move to Hawaii and get this particular piece of property. So I offered my points to Meatloaf and Sony and said, just buy me out. They did. And that's why I'm living in Hawaii right now. And I've never regretted the decision. So, so Meatloaf did have points. That's interesting. I did not know that. I always thought Todd was, was in control. Uh, here's another article that says, this is from 2013. Um, he does not regret selling off his points on Meatloaf's classic album, Bad Out of Hell. The album has been certified platinum over 14 times in the U.S. alone. Um, the actual number is contested, although it's generally considered to be in the top five selling albums of all time. I don't actually collect royalties anymore. We just said that, the whole thing. He said, my very first royalty check was for three quarters of a million. I haven't seen one like it since. So he made $750,000 from his first royalty check from the points. I'd say that's a pretty good investment of money. Um, in any case, Todd played guitar and very famously, and we've talked about this on here. Was that the doorbell? Might've been the doorbell. We've talked about this on here. Oh, that is the doorbell. Jesus Christ. I'm in the middle of a broadcast. Um, we've talked about this on here before. 
um, the story of how Meatloaf friggin' um, got the motorcycle for Bad Out of Hell. What happened was Jim Steinman and Meatloaf were like, we want a motorcycle sound on Bad Out of Hell. And they were like, uh, Todd is like, we can't, how are we going to get a, mo- what do you mean? You want to, you want me to, you want to bring a motorcycle in and record it? We can't, it's not possible. And what he did was he plugged his guitar into the console, flipped some switches and some filters and created the revving of a motorcycle with his guitar uh, I, that never heard a story, a recording story that has impressed me so much as that one in that kind of way. <laughs> So they record the album. Nothing really sort of happens with it at first, but they just they just went out there and they toured and they toured and they toured with it. And it just kept going and going and going and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it exploded. And so here's this album that is just climbing the charts, selling like crazy. And it's the most mainstream, you know, it's it's super mainstream and commercial, but its music has never been more punk rock. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's this incredibly punk rock thing that somehow broke through. I mean, the, the, the producer of the New York Dolls, the first New York Dolls album is the producer for Bad Out of Hell. It's kind of surreal when you think about it like that. So that's interesting, though. I did not know that. So Meatloaf, so let's, why did Meatloaf sue over Bad Out of Hell? Meatloaf has sued songwriter Jim Steinman and manager David Sonnenberg over trademark rights. And I mean, 10 years later, they'd be recording an album uh, regarding Bad Out of Hell, asking for more than 50 million. Um, Meatloaf, uh, blah, 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 blah. He uh, Meatloaf has used the phrase bat out of hell extensively for the past 29 years in connection with his recordings, videos, tours and merchandise. The complaint uh, alleges he claims that Steinman has not used the mark, but nonetheless registered it in 1995 as owned by Steinman's bat out of hell, Inc. With the U.S. trademark office, trademark rights are being are based on actual use of a mark in connection with goods and services, meaning that even if you own a trademark, but you never do anything with it versus somebody who also maybe is in connection with that same mark, but uses it all the time, you need to like use it. Um, uh, And that's what weighs out in a court of law. Um, The complaint alleges that out of nowhere, Steinman applied for a federal trademark registration, but never objected to meatloaf using the phrase until a recent falling out. So I guess over bad out of hell three. Yeah, here we go. According to the meatloaf camp, they offered Steinman a position to produce and write on the up and coming album bad out of hell three, the monster is loose, which will be released in October, uh, says executive producer Winston Simone. Along with Jim's lawyer, we had negotiated by far the best producer agreement that we have ever seen. Unfortunately, Jim did not decided not to sign the agreement or accept the very substantial advance. Since then, Steinman and his representatives have approached Meatloaf's labels, Universal and Virgin, falsely asserting trademark ownership and threatening litigation. Meatloaf's representatives say Steinman and Sonnenberg used the trademarks trademark rights as the basis of a campaign to undermine and interfere with meatloaf's concert album tour and contracts and others and other things the complaint alleges the suit asks the court to declare who owns the trademark rights seeks damages in excess in excess of 50 million dollars for interfering with meatloaf's contractual relationships with his labels and for an injunction stopping further use of the mark by Steinman. Meatloaf will not be bullied by anyone. He will continue to use the title Bat Out of Hell in any way he wants, says his attorney, Louis Skip Miller in Los Angeles. Steinman could not be immediately reached for comment, and Sonnenberg decided to uh, decline uh, a comment. So they had a, that. So that's interesting. I didn't even, I knew that there was some legal stuff between them, especially regarding Bat Out of Hell 3, but I didn't know it was over trademark and that, that, you know, they had fallen out in the past. They had fallen out um, after the original Bat Out of Hell. They fell out in the 80s and then they reunited again for Bat Out of Hell 2. And that was, you know, the video, the music videos directed by Michael Bay. And it's it was just a monstrous, monstrous success in and of itself. Probably the 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 success that Meatloaf will be known for even more than Bad Out of Hell. People know Meatloaf for 
for that. Um, the, the thing that I really want to touch on, and then here's the thing, where is it in the list of best selling albums of all time? So it is currently at number four, at least according to Wikipedia, uh, total certified copies are 21.7 million, but claim sales, they claim, you know, if you include things before sound scan, 44 million copies sold. Okay. Top is Michael Jackson with thriller at 49 or at 70 ACDC back in black 50 million Whitney Houston uh bodyguard soundtrack 45 million and then meatloaf and then coming in afterwards is the Eagles but yeah um Aaron brings up a great point this album came out before thriller so like the the fact that like what talk about what a talking about what a juggernaut it really is it's actually quite interesting to see uh all these top selling albums the beatles don't even come in until i don't know what let's see here one two i, I don't know i'm not going to count that right now um the beatles first album comes in at 32 million or eight 18.2 from certified copies so the beatles don't even come in until sergeant pepper's only hearts club band um, Michael Jackson, this is crazy. Michael Jackson has th top three albums, okay? Dangerous, Bad, and Thriller. So he has the number one spot, and then the number 13 spot, and then the number, wow, Jaggy Little Pill is up there too. That's nuts, man. Uh, Black Album's on there. It, it, I mean, it really is something. So to be, sit at number four really, really says something. I mean, we're talking about ginormous amounts of money. And what's crazy about Metallica is they own the masters to that stuff now. So they're probably getting even, doing even better. More money than they'll ever know what to do with for the rest of their lives. God bless them. Um, what else can we say about, about the, just the depth of Meatloaf? Well, you know, the song itself is a beautiful song. We'll finish with that, actually. We will, we will, here's something that's interesting. In 1996, um, rock singer Meatloaf, who's 1977, Bad Out of Hell, remains one of the best selling albums in pop history, has said it has been shorted out millions and millions of dollars in royalty payments. It's brutal the way entertainers are treated in this business, Meatloaf said in, in a phone interview from London. All I'm asking is for these guys to be fair and live up to the agreement we signed. I did my part. I recorded an album that has been a giant success and seller for almost 20 years. They didn't mind making a ton of money on my album. Is it too much to ask for them to pay what they owed me? Of course, the beefy entertainer is expected to file a breach of contract lawsuit uh, today. Blah, 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 blah. Um, but that, yeah, so they've always, they have always, they've always had problems. Here's something that's interesting, though. Meatloaf's case is unusual in such complaints by major stars are usually settled in private negotiations. He is among, among several high-profile complaints in recent years that have received a public airing. That is nuts. TLC had the third best-selling album in 1995, said they were forced to file for bankruptcy last year in part because their contract with Pepitone Records paid them such a meager royalty rate. It, it really is what record companies, you know, we sit here and we we um, are really sad about like Napster and like what happened with Napster and yada, 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 and like how it destroyed the record industry. It was karma, dude. It was karma. The way that the record industry treated um, their artists, the way that they treated, uh, um, you know, people buying music by price gouging the costs. Like it was a, it was a, uh, it was an inevitability caused by technology. Was it the right thing to do? Maybe not, but you know, or, or sorry, was it the legal thing to do legally? No, it was not. It was stealing, but was it the right thing to do? I'm not so sure, man. I don't know. I really don't know in today's day and age, when we look at everything, when we look at where music has gone and the, how the internet has empowered artists, like every artist, and there's so many of them that are, you know, complaining or you get so many artists today that are complain, they complain and complain and complain about the state of things. And the reality is, is that if you have a following, the keys to the kingdom are right there. Like if Meatloaf and Jim Steinman had the knowledge and the infrastructure and the means of the internet when they were recording Bad Out of Hell in 1977, they would never have to deal with any of the nonsense that they dealt with with all these record labels. But that's not how the system used to work. I don't know. Um, 
One last thing I wanted to meatloaf slags off Sony. All right. Last thing I'm going to talk about this because this was important. I remember when this happened in a statement from meatloaf. This was in this was this was at, on the 40th anniversary in June. Sony Records in the UK is trying to release another stupid version of Bad Out of Hell only for them to make more money. For those of you who do not know, Jim and I get no royalties from Bat and never have. They admit that they have sold 44 million. Uh, what they have sold, what they have really sold worldwide. And I have gotten, I am serious, pennies. They have screwed me and Jim since 1981. It took us almost 13 years just to get statements. So I'm asking all of you not to buy this record, to boycott this release completely. It is nothing but a greedy record company trying to steal your money. Don't buy, thanks. Meet and Jim. P.S. Spend your money and go see a great musical, Bad Out of Hell, the musical which, as you know, Bad Out of Hell is an adaptation of Bad Out of Hell, um, which I have not seen and I would like to very much. Um, so now here's here's another interesting thing that we're going to touch on before, before we leave you. Um, someone writes here, how could, here, I'll, I'll, pull, I'll pull this up on the thing. Let me pull this up on the thing, on the thing. So this is from uh, this is from one of those websites where you can ask questions about stuff. Hold on before uh, Aaron says, I talked to Davey Havoc like 17 years ago about him being on Nitro Records. He kind of laughed and said he made more money uh, touring on merch. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, how could Bad Out of Hell sell 43 million copies? This is the question that is asked. And then this is pretty cool. These are just random people from the internet commenting. They're not people of like rep reputable source per se. They're just, you know, common people commenting. And this is what they say. Freddie Clark says, and this was on December 30th, 2021. In 1977, I had just arrived at a maritime college after leaving high school at 16. My musical heroes at the time were Pink Floyd, Roxy Music, and Queen. Along came this brash, in-your-face rock album from nowhere. My college mate had lots of sound equipment, courtesy of his dad, who was a technical head of outside broadcasts for the BBC at the time. So to make some money, we set we set ourselves up to provide sound and music at outdoor events. Our first and only major booking was a custom car show. We set up the PA and the music system from a tent with lots of 12-volt batteries. After the intro, we started playing the standard music of the day. Grease soundtrack, ABBA, Boney M, Blondie, Boomtown Rats, all featured prominently. Then we had a slack time where we could do some filler music. So we pushed Bat out of hell. Within minutes, a bunch of hairy bikers with colors saying Satan slaves Shipley arrived at our tent and asked us who that was and don't stop playing it. After that, after they left, normal people arrived with the same question. I think we played the whole of that LP more than seven times that day, and we did not get a single person asking us to stop. The power vocals and the extreme guitar riffs were just so far beyond anything of the time. What is most amazing is that 48 years later, those same sounds are still as powerful. I mean, the, talk about like explaining what makes an album sell 43 million copies. Why is it so great? This is what I really wanted to get to the root of this before we left. This is from Suzanne Amara. Uh, if you were a teenager waiting for life to start at any point, you wouldn't have to ask that question. My best friend in high school and I listened to this album over and over and over. It cries out emotional intensity. I read about the making of it, and Jim Steinman was going for the ultimate of everything. Paradise by the Dashboard Light showed the ultimate price for being paid for um, getting lucky. Batter to Hell was the ultimate car crash song, and so on. Every song on the album is a sing-alongable, and when I hear them, especially Paradise, I'm right back to being barely 17 and barely dot, 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 you know. You know, what? what's amazing, too, is that, like, yeah, Aaron, I'm guessing it's probably like that though that bit that biker gang is like Hell's Angels of some kind. Um, what's really amazing, what's really amazing about like what what she's saying, she's so right. Everything it really is ultimate this and ultimate that. And we're gonna we'll close with with uh the lyrics of Bad Out of Hell, some of my favorite lyrics ever written. Ever, I would say. Top 
top lyrics. Um, Nick Nick Moin Moin Nick Moin uh, says this. People liked it. You may never have met one, but trust me, there were and still are millions of Meatloaf fans. Go to any teenage Sweet 16 or college dance party, or for that matter, even a lot of weddings, and you will hear Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I used to perform Paradise by the Dashboard Light as a karaoke song, and it is the worst karaoke song ever. You never do a Meat Love song for karaoke. You think you would, but the songs are so long that if not everybody is joining in the fun, then it comes off as this incredibly selfish act because um, you're just taking up eight minutes of time. And uh, it's just a great song. It is. And the thing is, because there there is a, a theatricality, an operatic theatricality to this rock and roll music, it's like it's infectious. It makes you want to sing along. And the lyrics touch on just like such normal teenage angst themes that it just all cohesively comes together and works together. Um, it isn't Dylan and it isn't the greatest thing in the world I have ever heard, but it's fun. It also had some great videos, very true, and Meatloaf tore the heck out of that album, often bringing down the house with his powerful voice and a great band. It's true. They had they had guys from the East Street Band in there as well. I mean, they had a tight band. If you listen to some of those 77 live recordings, it's epic, grand, over-the-top, silly, and eloquent all at the same time. I agree. It's pretty much a classic American pop album of its era, and it sold accordingly. All right, here's another guy. David Zahn says this. I like what this guy says. One. Jim Simon wrote big epic songs Two, They had a, a crack bunch of studio musicians, including all of Utopia and several East street band members. Three meatloaf. Isn't a bad singer by any means. Isn't a bad singer. He's a friggin' phenomenal singer and a lead singer. That big was pretty unique for a rock and roll band. There were some larger soul and country singers, uh, Carla DeVito. She wasn't on the album, but I'm guessing in an era where there were a few videos available Seeing her prancing around with Mr. Loaf probably sold a few copies. Bill Way says, Battle to Hell was perfect, was, was perfectly timed to ride the thematic album wave. Interesting. So he talks about it as a thematic album, which it very much is. It was very different in lyrical content from the singer-songwriter pap that was in place at the time. So again, you have something that's so unique and out of the box that is riding the pinnacle of commercial success when radio play is at an all-time high. You know what I mean? And here are these long, drawn-out songs that are more Broadway tunes. And obviously, it adapted very well into a Broadway-style show, which has been doing very well, Bad of the Hell. Um, his, perf his performance was rock opera laid over tremendously played instrumentation. Paradise by the Dashboard Light hit so many chords with the uh, aging boomers of the time, it became anthemic. And two out of three ain't bad was an obtusely thematic phenomenon that asked more questions than it answered. And by the way, the Rocky Horror Picture Show perform performance cemented his showbiz legend forever. That's true. You have to combine this with the Rocky Horror Picture Show stuff as well. I mean, Rocky Horror is blowing up and solidifying anybody who's associated with it in cult status. Combine that, and it's a musical. So combine all of the people that are fans of Rocky Horror. Like, it all makes sense, man. It all folds in together. Robbie says... Um, the Kulik brothers, Bruce from Kiss and Bob from Paul Stanley's 78, 79. I didn't know that there was another Kulik. Um, toured with him on this album live in the 70s. Meatloaf has thanked them publicly for the success of the live shows. I mean, I know that those guys are great guitarists. So there you go. It's like the creme de la creme. What's going on, Jane? Welcome to the stream. Um, so, and by the way, the Rocky Horror Picture Show performance cemented his showbiz legend forever. The 43 million copies sold Took, the play, uh, took place over a long period of time as more people discovered it over time. And finally, the night he introduced his parents from the stage at Madison Square Garden literally blew me away. I will never forget it. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank the people who gave me every chance I ever had. Give it up for my mom and dad, Harriet and Leo Loaf. Interesting. Didn't his dad try to kill him with a butcher knife? And that's like why he kind of has his name Meatloaf. Um, I don't know. Um, Frank S., 
Cher says, why did the hula hoop catch on? I was 17 when that album came out. Oh my God, it was such a unique album. Like Bruce, meaning Bruce Springsteen, but a lot more fun. I've never ever thought to compare, maybe it's because I don't listen to Bruce Springsteen. I have never ever drawn any parallels between Bruce Springsteen and Meatloaf. But I, I guess now I got to go check out a Bruce Springsteen album. He says, I'm listening to Meatloaf right now and this is why I'm here. I can't listen to it often because of the memories associated with that summer. I, I can relate to that. Like there are certain albums. It's like, it's like a bottle of wine. It's like you, you keep it on or like a bottle of liquor. You only take it off the shelf and pour yourself a drink when you're feeling like it. Otherwise you, you, you can't listen to it because of the things that it invokes with inside of you. That's why music is so powerful. You know, in a way music is it, you know, people call music a time machine and it is music is a time machine. But it, you know, when you think about like what music is, it's like they're spells. They are incantations for summoning memories from the past. That's what songs can be and are so, so often in time. Um, so, you know, um, it's one of my favorites of all time, too, Jane. I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, I used to go every Halloween at midnight, Rocky Horror Picture Show in the city. You go to the Halloween parade, then go to Rocky Horror. Uh, so he says, that was the best and worst summer in my life. I was changed forever. Uh, Tom says, it was a hell of an album. It just keeps selling. The fans keep saying, I want you. I need you. <laughs> um, let me see here. Uh, some fans, like fans of the Beatles and other hit bands, are very loud about it. This is Fleming Sorison. Uh, While fans of other bands are more silent, I am a fan of the German musician Klaus wonderlick and people always ask who the hell is he but he actually earned 13 gold discs and a gold cassette during his career and that was a time when sales figures for anything golden was much higher than today my point is is that many successful artists go on relatively unnoticed compared to ones we all know and they can still sell albums in high figures um okay i think that's it so the last thing we're going to do here and we're going to go back to the lyrics of Bow to Hell, one of my favorite songs. It's like the perfect thing. You know, a friend, Martha, she was talking about Heaven Can Wait is so apropos to like listen to today because of Meatloaf, Heaven Can Wait. But if anything, if you think about like what the message of Heaven Can Wait means, it means that like I've got more living to do. I've got more living to do. Heaven Can Wait. But when you think about Bow to Hell, what is Bow to Hell? It's a title, but Bad at a Hell also represents something in the song. And it's it truly is a song that, you know, someone before mentioned that it's the ultimate car crash song. Bad at a Hell is, it's also the, it's it's the ultimate song about live, uh, uh, sorry, live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse, right? That whole thing, live fast, die young. Um, the back part of the lyric goes, well, I can see myself tearing at the road, tearing up the road faster than any other boy has ever gone. And every lyrical stanza is answered with one of Todd Rudgeon's incredible face melting guitar solos. And my skin is raw, but my soul is ripe. And no one's going to stop me now. I'm going to make my escape. And the thing that's amazing about it is this is so timeless. Like this is every youth of the last hundred years. I don't know, like every youth of every youth since the fifties, right? I'd say every youth since the fifties after world war two. And like, you know, you didn't have to join, you know, join the army when you turned 18 and go fight, you know, excluding the Vietnam war. You know what I mean? 50 suburbia, starting with 50 suburbia. Um, no one's going to stop me now. I'm going to make my escape. Isn't that such a teenager attitude? It doesn't matter who you are as a teenager. You can find a way to plug yourself into that lyric. No one's no one. Whoever one is, is going to stop me now. I'm going to make my escape, but I can't stop thinking of you. And again, all of these lyrics are meant to plug into something. They can all plug in. I can't stop thinking of you. Who is you? You is a girl. You is a boy. You is a somebody, you know, I can't stop thinking of you and get distracted. And I never see the sudden curve until it's way too late. It's a tragedy. So what it ends up being, it, the, the tragedy of the song is that youth burns so bright and extinguishes so quickly. 
And that goes for people that survive their youth and for people who die in their youth. Um, I would definitely, I would definitely say, uh, you know, Jane, interesting point. I, I don't know if it's his, I, I, it, for me, it's his legacy song, but I think I, uh, I, um, I do anything for love, but I won't do that would be, would be his legacy song. If you're, if from from a from like a a cross section of of people, if you if you pulled them, they would all say, um, "I would do anything for love." For me personally, it's bad out of hell, and I never see the sudden curve until it's way too late. Because when we're young, right? When you're young in life and you just go a thousand miles an hour and you're cocky and and most of all, you're invincible. That's what this is a song about. The song is about uh, invincibility. Uh, the youthful invincibility. What does that mean? It means that when we're young, we think that nothing bad can happen to us, that we can, we do crazy, risky, outrageous stuff. We don't think about the consequences in some cases because we've never been badly hurt, like physically or emotionally, depending on the situation. And it's not until that we suffer these, these injuries that we start to get a sense of humility and that humility is, wait a minute, I'm not invincible. But in that moment, in this moment, and these are the moments in which one lives forever. Like, yes, it's just a moment of time and it's fleeting and it, it, it ends and you get on with your life. But it's also moments in time that, that are burned. They're burned into the brain. Like, for eternity, if that makes any sense. Again, I don't know if any of this is making any sense. Um, but we're, 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 we don't have that sense of humility until we've been hurt. And until then, we are young. We are invincible in our youth. And so that's what leave fast, die young, you know, leave a beautiful corpse kind of represents too a little bit. Uh, he says, but I can't stop thinking of you and I never see the sudden curve until it's way too late. And, and they repeat the refrain twice. And then there's a giant car crash. The, there's a bike crash. And then, I mean, this is just so epic, dude. Then I'm down in the bottom of a pit in a blazing sun, torn and twisted at the foot of a burning bike. And I think somebody somewhere must be tolling a bell. I love that. I mean, every lyric, this is one of the best verses of any song, any friggin' song. I, I, that, that is not hyperbole. He says, uh, and I think somebody somewhere must be tolling a bell. And what does that mean? When the bell tolls, it means that it's, you know, your, your, your end on this earth has come. You will now shuffle loose this mortal coil. And he says, and the last thing I hear is my heart still beating? You know, they say your last sense to go is your 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 sense of of hearing. Um, your ability to hear is the last thing to go uh, in terms of your ses- in terms of your senses. And the last thing, well, it's it, he's saying I see. The last thing I see is my heart. Okay, that makes no sense. Egg on my face, whatever. And the last thing I see is my heart. So he's looking down into the, his chest cavity. And he sees his heart, but his heart is still beating. His body is broken. He's on the verge of death, but his heart is still beating. And he he sees it breaking out of my body and flying away like a bat out of hell. Like I'm going to burn in hell, but my heart. And what does that really mean? Heart. This heart is heart. His passion, soul, um, all of the qualities that 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 make us who we are and you know burning bright inside of us all of that stuff so even though his mortal shell is dying that heart is ripping out of his body and flying away like a bat out of hell and then you know they repeat it again and it's just so oh it's so emotional i'm gonna listen to it when i when i drive my son uh to where he's going next as soon as i get off the stream i'm gonna listen to bat out of hell in the car uh, I already listened to the album all the way through today and I listened to Bad Out of Hell again and I got to listen to it again after reading these lyrics. Then I'm down at the bottom of a plit, pit in a blazing sun, torn and twisted at the foot of a burning bike. And I think somebody somewhere must be told in a bell. And the last thing I see 
Is my heart still beating? Breaking out of my body and flying away like a bat out of hell. It's so good, dude. It's so good. It's like, it's like mortality and death have taken him, have caught up with him, but they're not going to get his heart. And his heart flies away and escapes. His soul, his passion, that whatever that is, that, that youthful teenage thing, it, it, it escapes the death of this young person who twisted up his body with the bike. I don't know if that, I feel like my words don't properly reflect what I'm trying to say. It's very hard to put this into words, but I just think it's some of the best lyric lyrical writing ever. And if you've ever been on a highway, like I have, I've definitely done this and just driving way too fast and thinking about how my skin is raw, but my soul is ripe and no one's going to stop me. Now I'm going to make my escape. It just so good. So friggin' good. Yes. And Louis Anderson also passed away. Another huge loss. Thank you, Lark. Very true. Very, very sad. I was not um, nothing against Louis. I watched the show, the cartoon show, but I was not. I didn't know much about Louis. I'm not going to sit here and uh, eulogize someone I did not know. I didn't know Meatloaf at the human being, but I did meet Meatloaf and I did love his music. And so, yeah, um, you know, uh, rest, rest in power, Meatloaf. And again, so tragic that his death seemingly um, preventable because of the fact that he was uh, an anti, an anti, you know what? And yeah, like, you know, he didn't have to die from COVID and he did um, because he made a very foolish decision to not get the jab. So just a, a real shame, a real, real shame. Um, just to let you know, uh, from his channel, we're powered by riotstickers.com, as you can see right here. Uh, we got a nice deals going on at riotstickers.com. Link is in the description. Um, normally, it's $59, but for $29.50, that's 50% off, you can get 53-inch by 3-inch stickers at riotstickers.com with the promo code FROMUS, F-R-U-M-E-S-S. It's my last name. So make sure you take a, uh, take a moment to do that. We're going to play our little video vid. Um, and work our way out. I wonder if I can cut out that dead air of me in all of my broadcasts. I have never had dead air like that. Like I'm so bummed that never happens. We make stickers, banners and buttons too, posters and promo cards. There's nothing we can't print for you from stage backdrops to Um, I just want to clarify something that I just was looking at my Facebook page. Um, this is uh, from someone on my Facebook. Uh, I had thought that he was anti, you know what, uh, but I'm being told that for the record, meatloaf, here's some other perspective. So I don't know what to believe. And frankly, I shouldn't have even brought it up during this broadcast. It just should have been about the death of a great man um, who was incredibly talented and that we lost him. Um, it, it, it says for the record, meatloaf was a, against the mandates, which is different than being anti, you know what I'm trying not to say the V word here in an interview with the Pittsburgh post Gazette. He stated that he feared the disease, but did not state whether or not he was, uh, if that he had the jab, I'm not stating an opinion on his stance one way or another, but there are many people who are themselves, um, 
who who have the the shot, but at the same time, do not feel that anyone should be required to get one. Respectfully, I really wish people would do a few minutes worth of research before commenting. So I really want to put that out there, and and it makes me realize that I I probably should have I I did not even know until someone had commented today that that he may have been that, and I guess maybe he wasn't. Who knows? Who knows where his stance lies? All I know is. Meatloaf was really, really good to me. He was really, really good to his fans. He was a wonderful, wonderful musician and a, a fantastic actor and left behind a legacy that will be around and remembered for as long as our civilization is. And for that, we salute you, Meatloaf. Um, put on Bad Out of Hell today in celebration of Meatloaf and his music and Jim Steinman, Jim Steinman as well. We don't want to forget Jim. I think that might have been the contention initially when they first uh, got together. So uh, I'll say peace and hair grease to all of you out there. And uh, we will be back very soon. I am recording a very, very, very cool show tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow morning with uh, a special guest. And you guys are all going to love that. So Patreon, do you know about the Patreon? Let me tell you. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk, and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now, I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers, and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee, but it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.